The Corner Tigers versus the Three Lions. The Sultans of Reverse Swing versus the Merchants of Seam. Kudrat versus Calculation. Rationality versus Irrationality. Cricketing contests in the past between Pakistan and England have often been depicted in stark terms. Not only are the two competing countries viewed as vastly different sides in terms of their setups and strengths, the style in which they play the game and the very conception of what the sport should be according to these two teams is seen to be in direct contradiction to each other. Perhaps more than any other high-profile cricketing rivalry that I can think of, Pakistan versus England is viewed among sectors of the public and the media reporting on it as a clash of civilizations. And in some respects, the competitive philosophies embodied by prior teams from each nation have lived up to that building. When they have squared up against each other, they have at times indeed rather been dissimilar, especially in some high-profile encounters. Pakistan's reliance on wrist spin and express pace and their attack as key weapons in the 1992 World Cup were as divergent from England's approach of stacking their lineup with economical all-rounders of moderate pace and spin, picked as much for their capability with the ball as their versatility with the bat and in the field. And shades of that remain even today. The Pakistani lineup to play in the 2022 World Cup T20 final featured Naseem Shah, Har- Harisrof, Shain Shah Afridi, and Mohammad Osim. Those are four bowlers, three of which can be regarded in most circles as very high quality, who at their best can clock in excess of 140 kilometers per hour, fairly consistently. In contrast, amongst the somewhat depleted T20 pace bowling unit England put out that fateful day, only Jordan could be counted as someone who could breach that coveted speed landmark with any semblance of consistency. The rest, your Sam Currens, your Ben Stokes, your Chris Wokes, probably don't reach those speeds as consistently. Yet, in addition to their relative frugality, which with they conceded their runs in that final, the foursome from England outshined their Pakistani counterparts with their low-order hitting and remarkable catching and outfielding. But taking a closer look at the intricacies of those past encounters that these two sides have played throughout their very long history reveals just as many similarities as differences in the way that Pakistan play the game as England and vice versa. And in part, on The Cricket Historian, we aim to do that today. Welcome to The Cricket Historian, a new segment on Cow Corner Cricket Cast, where we dive deeper into the fabled past of the game to shed new light on cricket series and events that have recessed in the minds of many. In doing so, we hope to deliver insights that can be used and learnt by enthusiasts, analysts, and participants of the game going forward. My name's Pratham, and first up on a trip down memory lane, the 2000 test series between Pakistan and England. In covering this past contest, I'm glad to be joined by a fellow avid lover of cricket history and friend, Stuff. You can find him expressing his ruminations on the game alongside his mates LBK and Ghostly on the King Pair podcast, a link of which is provided below in the episode description. But before we dive 
deeper and delve into the specifics of this contest, I want to ask you stuff. A, how's everything going? And B, what made you interested in reviewing the series? Hi, Pratham. I'm doing well, and uh, thanks for having me on. So this is a really interesting series to talk about, because a lot really went into it. One of the first things that jumps out at you if you look at the Crick Info page for this series is that it sort of defies the established belief that we tend to have when we look at contests between teams, in that the team with the better batting and the team with the better bowling lost this series. Pakistan had four individual centuries in this series to England's two. Pakistan of six of the most prolific batters, six of the ten most prolific batters, and the three best bowling averages on the tour. But they do not win this series. They lose this series 1-0, in fact. And that also brings up another point in that this is a very transitional series for both teams. Pakistan had an excellent decade in the 1990s. There's a lot of really notable players, really good players, and there was quite a bit of success. It begins with the World Cup in 92. There's a lot of Test Series wins in there. And I think the 1996 World Cup side was the best team Pakistan had in that era. They didn't win it, but there's a lot of really good players there. And this is around the point where most of those players are starting to be uh, transitioned out of the team. England, on the other hand, had a really bad time in the 1990s. But this is the start of the start of a new decade and start of a new new era for England where they have a lot more success. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that a bit more later. Now, another... Another interesting thing for this series, it sort of parallels something that's going on right now. England have just landed in Pakistan for their first tour of the country in 16 years. When England landed in Pakistan in 2000 for their tour in 2000, it was the first tour of Pakistan in 13 years. So it's, uh, you know, it was history back then, and it parallels history being made today. And on that note, this was a series that went right down to the wire. You had multiple results possible going into the final day of the series, and in the end, it's the series is decided in darkness and the last bit of possible play. And if the series going on today, well, starting later this week, uh, ends up coming down to the wire like that, I think it will be a great success. So it's interesting to look at this series and see why this one ended up being so close and how... Uh, how the series that is going to begin later uh, should try to emulate it, and in what ways it probably shouldn't try. Indeed, indeed. And actually, speaking about that point regarding darkness, one of my reasons for actually wanting to cover the series has to do with one of the iconic images shot of the series amidst that darkness. Cricket, like any other sport, is a visual spectacle, right? And like many others growing up watching the game or learning about its past, I was attracted to photographs that I could find that showcase past cricketers in action that I didn't really have an opportunity to see live. For example, Richie Benno, the, the great Aussie likes Benno of the 60s, when I was growing up, still was a cricket commentator, a very brilliant commentator, arguably the best cricket commentator ever. I didn't really recognize, when I recognized that he was actually a player that I played for a while, I, I wasn't aware of that initially when I started listening to his commentary. I wanted to see how did he bowl, right? How did he bat? Because he was a leg-spinning all-rounder. So I was able to find some pictures of that. But sometimes those pictures were very, for lack of better words, shot dubiously. <laughs> they had very bad quality. They just had very poor resolutions. 
they made everything look like a potato sometimes. <laughs> this is the way I can politely put it. So the pictures that really stood out to me at the time were the ones that were shot in a high resolution where you could see certain details and, and that were often in dramatic or visually arresting settings. And one of the photographs actually taken immediately in the aftermath of England's win in the final test of the series was among, amongst one of the most striking ones I've seen to date. It's a picture of Nasser Hussain and Graham Thorpe coming off the field in Karachi, celebrating after having sealed a win that in all honesty they probably thought wasn't possible even just two days back. For all the listeners who are watching this YouTube, this video on YouTube, I should say, it's the image that you saw in the title card and thumbnail of this video. And just before we get into the nuts and bolts of how the series panned out, I just would like to quickly talk about the reasons why I like this photograph. And the first factor is really just the lighting, right? So the, the photographer of this image was a man by the name of Lawrence Griffiths. And I thought he did a really interesting job in conveying the environment and the scenario that he was trying to showcase in, in the photograph at large. Specifically with the fact that the exposure on this, the light picture of the camera and the exposure of the, the, the photograph itself was really interesting because it, it really showcases Hussein and Thorpe in what is like a really like glowing, like almost orangey, like light blue kind of light with a backdrop. And that's kind of funny because in reality, when you see the footage of uh, the match terminating in, the, in its final stages, it was actually play, being played out completely in pitch blackness. Almost. It was, it was it was so dark that you if you didn't have your lights on and you were driving, you'd probably be stopped over by a cop for a misdemeanor or that sort of thing, or a good ticket of some kind. But yeah, so even though the majority of the picture is this backdrop of like a more brighter light, you, you get a slight tinge in the northmost band of the picture, which is of a dark blue twilight sky. And that sort of gives away the game a little bit about how actually, how dark it was. <laughs> in the image. So I, that always fascinated me, That just that contrast. Um, again, visu very visually arresting, even outside of the cricket. But then the second thing that is more, perhaps a little bit more cricket-related, is actually the camera angle. So the, photog the photograph was taken from an angle, and it was at such a close-up where it ended up showcasing Hussein ecstatic in, in the front, right? And, and beside him, but slightly back in the depth of the image, there's this, there's this picture of a sort of understated but quietly grinning Thorpe beside him, right? Who's also looking downward a little bit. And it's really brilliantly shot because it, in some ways, is almost like is a perfect representation of their personalities, a reflection of that, with Nasser being the sort of intense competitor who, you know, if you use the proverbial term, wore his heart on, on his sleeve, you know, showing the passion of his emotions outwardly a lot. And then you had Thorpe who is sort of the more calm guy from the inside. And he, he's, he's the guy who kind of just fades in the... He, he's not the centerpiece of any sort of you know memorable event per se, but often does the critical job that is key to making that moment memorable. And he, he, he does the job without fuss, diligently, with a, almost like an in, a stereotypically English sense of modesty to it. In a way that also highlights their, or hints to, I should say, their performances throughout the series as well, as we'll get to further. But stuff. when I showed you this uh, picture, there was something else that you ended up liking a lot about. <laughs> a lot about it, and you noticed immediately that was that was really interesting to you. So, so what exactly was that? Yes, yeah, so this is a really iconic photo of really iconic moment from probably one of the most iconic photos of a test match taken in Pakistan. 
and it shows two important stars in the foreground, but in the background, there's another very important person to the series lurking there, and that is Steve Buckner. Uh, Buckner was the elite panel umpire on all three tests in the series, and uh, especially in the final test, but he, he did have his moments in the first two tests, but especially in the final test, he is probably the most important person to ensure that a result was played out in this in that third test and to ensure that the series did end 1-0 instead of 0-0. Indeed. And I also love the fact that you can see, you, you don't even see his face in the photo, right? He's looking downward with his hat, sort of his wide brim hat, his steer, you know, his, his traditional white brim hat that he'd often umpire in. You can see him just looking down almost. And it's, it's, it's almost like he knows, man, I'm going to be in so much trouble with the <laughs> Pakistani press. I don't want to have a deal with this con- controversy. But yeah, without further ado, let's redirect our minds to the months of October to December 2000, where a squad of 18 that originally landed in Karachi, as a set of almost no hopers, proceeded to leave the nation having pulled off one of the most stunning upsets seen by an English team in the 21st century. Leading up to the series, England, the year before, they dropped to the bottom of the test rankings in the entire world, which is, how do I put it, pretty embarrassing, especially given that that ranking happened after a loss at home to New Zealand, a team that had been struggling on its own during the later half of the 1990s and had also lost a series 2-0 to England in New Zealand. And it also came after the tales of a pretty disastrous World Cup where England hosted the World Cup and were out before the World Cup knockout stages, which is about as uh, embarrassing of a sort of performance a host country or nation can do in a World Cup setting. So pretty embarrassing stuff all around. But long story short, they were in the doldrums about as bad as you could get. Their results did improve um, in 2000. They defeated a team, a West Indies team that was pretty weak, admittedly. It was the start of West Indies no longer being taken seriously as a top side in world cricket and they lost to England pretty convincingly in the end 3-1 loss in particular so it was the first time that England had won a test series against Indies in 31 years it was a pretty historic moment and they did sweep aside a Zimbabwe team but you look at their record apart from that and you especially look at their record away from home in the past couple of years it was it wasn't looking too promising after that New Zealand loss that I mentioned earlier they traveled first to South Africa and they lost pretty convincingly to South Africa. It was a 2-1 loss. But if you actually look at the results, right, the test that they actually ended up winning was in a dead rubber. It was the last test match after they had lost the series 2-0. And let's just say that that result was contrived somewhat by a certain Mr. Hansi Kronia. And for all the cricket, you know, lovers or history lovers of um, cricket in the audience, I think you can see where this is going. <laughs> yeah, it came out later on that Kronia had match-fixed with a bookie to try to forfeit two innings so he could get a result in that test. So it was a very contrived result. The match only went to two days of full play. So yeah, it wasn't anything to really write home about in that sense. Um, but that really made them become just straight-up underdogs in the series, right? They really weren't expected to win. They weren't necessarily even expected to draw a lot of test series. They really were considered about as much on the back foot as a opposition team touring Pakistan could have been in in the grand scheme and context of things. But the one thing I would like to mention is after that New Zealand loss, there was a push by the English cricket board um, 
to issue what were known as central contracts. Uh, and those were introduced. And they, as we could see in this series and as we can see uh, in the first half of the, of the 2000s and English cricket going forward um, in comparison to the 90s and so forth, were significant in stabilizing the side. Because one of the biggest issues that England were having during the couple of years preceding the series was they'd often have a lot of talented players, but those talented players would often be playing a test match and then literally, you know, I mean, the, the stories of them literally finishing a test match, even having to, like, catch a, a car to go and play a county match, right? So the schedule was ridiculous. Uh, there was a lot of cricket being played. So that just gives you an instinct of what it was like for a lot of English cricketers in the 1990s. They were playing a lot of county cricket there, and, and, and the system was decentralized in such a way where the counties held the sway. Um, and so it became really problematic because you really had a situation where you couldn't protect players from you know burnout from playing too much cricket. Um, or even if they did play a lot of cricket, if they were you know having to deal with injuries, they were often being rushed back into the side. Um, Players themselves, even if they were performing well, were picked on a match-by-match -match basis. People were being dropped for pretty random reasons at times. You know, one bad match, you're out of the side, that sort of a deal um, for, you know, a couple of years. So long story short, it was about as shambolic of a system, uh, to put it politely, as you could get if you wanted to actually create a nucleus of a successful budding side that could stick together and, and compete around the world. Um, systematically. But their record is sort of in direct opposition almost to Pakistan's record. And, and stuff. you were looking into this a little bit more, uh, and you noticed something very interesting, something unique, probably something that almost very few cricket teams in history have ever had in terms of their record over a period of four or five years. So, so what was that? Yeah, so a little in contrast to England, Pakistan's record away was actually decent at this point. They, there is that 3-0 loss in Australia in winter 99, which is a lot closer than the 3-0 scoreline suggests. There were two very close games, and, but it does. this does start the spiral for Pakistan of losing every single test match they played in Australia since this 3-0 defeat, which I think is now 17 games. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, aside from that drubbing in Australia, they'd won in Sri Lanka, They'd won the Asian Test Championship, which was it, was... it was sort of similar to the Six Nations in rugby at this point, where you have... You play some of the games at home, some away. And funnily enough for Pakistan, the game they lose is at home. The games they win are the ones that are not in Pakistan. They win in <laughs> India, and they win in... They lose at home to Sri Lanka, and then they win in... They win the final in Bangladesh. And at this time, they also lose a close 1-0 series to the West Indies in the West Indies, which, again, the only match they got a result was the final test. It was a one-wicket win for the West Indies, and it was slightly dubious circumstances, to say the least. Uh, the umpire yeah, the West Indies was a team. Yeah, the West Indies was a team Pakistan had never beaten. They never won a series in that country before, and they almost pulled it off uh, at the start of 2000. And... Uh, in addition to that, they draw in South Africa 1-1, and they beat Zimbabwe away. Both of these are in 97-98. Now, winning away in Zimbabwe, I bring it up because you may not think that that's a big deal, but considering Pakistan lose at home to Zimbabwe in the winter of 99-2000, <laughs> it is a big deal. 
the defeat to Zimbabwe was the third consecutive home series that Pakistan had lost, and they also lose at home to Sri Lanka at this period. Remember, they had beaten Sri Lanka away after that, but they lose at home to them first. And going back a little bit further, they lose at home to South Africa, but then follow that up with a drawn, very well-played drawn series in South Africa soon afterwards. So, again, like, there's a hope. They beat Zimbabwe away, they lose to Zimbabwe at home. They draw South Africa away, they lose to South Africa at home. They beat Sri Lanka away, they beat, they lose to Sri Lanka at home. It's a very hit-and-miss record. So, yeah, it's a very poor record at home. And, but it's quite decent away. So, again, like, it's a team, this is a team that is in transition. It's a team with some talented players some players that are starting to fade away, and some players that get introduced to the side and don't quite stick. And we're going to see that a bit as we delve deeper into the series. But going into yeah, going into the background to this series specifically, England's trip. This is England's first tour of Pakistan since 1987, as we mentioned earlier. 13, this is 13 years after they toured 1987. This is their first tour since then. Now, England had been to Pakistan for the 1996 World Cup, but again, that was only won international matches. They were not there to play Pakistan specifically. They were there for a big world event. And I'm pretty sure England go home before the quarterfinals anyway, so they're not there for long. I, I think they, uh, just, to, just to quickly interject, I do think they play the quarterfinal, but then they are on the wrong side of Hassan and Jaisuria um, Blitzkrieg, and it doesn't end too well for them. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Yeah, so no player on either side in this series in 2000. Uh, was playing in 1987. The earliest debutants are Atherton, Stewart, and Anwar, who all debuted in 1989. So again, like this is new ground for everyone involved. England have not won a test match or a test series in Pakistan since 1961. They win one test in that five-game series, and they win the series 1-0, and that would go on to become a theme for Pakistan-England series in Pakistan, where quite a few of them end up 1-0. Uh, the following ones all end up 1-0 in favor of Pakistan. Um, and yeah, England do not win a single match after 1961 until 1987, which is the last time they visit Pakistan for a test match. Now, another interesting aspect for this tour in particular is that this is this takes place in that bit of a the Goldilocks zone almost for player exploration of countries where they actually tour the country and sort of experience the culture a little bit. There's something they were not able to do that well in tours of a time before this because tours back then tended to be run on the strictest budgets possible with players staying in cheap hotels given very limited rations and very limited freedom to explore very limited allowances but this is also something that doesn't really happen much today because post 9-11 in particular the the amount of freedom given to touring players has dropped significantly it's all about uh, security now so this tour takes place in that brief window between those two eras. And as a result, England end up exploring Pakistan quite a bit. They take in the culture a lot. And uh, very unusual for a lot of tours of the subcontinent, the England players are glowing in their reviews of Pakistan. And that's, again, something that certainly did not happen in 1987. It uh, certainly did not happen on any tours before that. And while there are a lot nicer things they say nowadays, they don't quite experience the culture in the same way. And... Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting interviews and picture photos of players on this tour that you just couldn't imagine seeing at any other point in history. Indeed, indeed. Um, and, you know, the the other thing also is, um, for a long time, I, just to, it would be remiss to mention, uh, part of the reason why that also was the case is for the longest time ever, teams, 
you know, um, the, the other reason why the security is so extensive even now for teams that are now starting to tour uh, Pakistan is obviously the attack in 2009 um, with the gunmen and so forth and, and really uh, that making it, when, when, when it, the actual cricketing sides were attacked in um, that bus, um, the, the Sri Lankan players, they, you know, a lot of more restrictive security protocols were introduced uh, apart from just, you know, the in the aftermath of 9-11. So uh, Pakistan in particular, even beyond the subcontinent, became a much more, you know, strict place for being able to go out and explore the culture. But to the point that you were mentioning about, you know, the, the players having like glowing assessments of uh, the time in Pakistan during the series, um, I'm, I'm always reminded of two uh, specific accounts that I'd, I'd like to share with uh, our listeners. Um, so there's a picture of, of the tour that I have seen of uh, Marcus Soskothic actually. And, he, and he's going out and he's sort of, he's gleefully staring at fried pakoras and, and like other like, you know, I think uh, some kebabs as well. Um, and he looks almost like he's like a kid in a candy shop <laughs> in the photo, just looking at this, you know, this guy in a bazaar, just like frying and, and, and these and putting them on a, you know, a displaying thali and all of that sort of stuff. So it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty sweet to look at. Uh, so definitely recommend checking that photo out. Um, and then the other account that comes to mind really is of, of Darren Goff. And, and so this is actually an interview that was done well after the fact of the tour. Um, but he talks about having gone to a hotel in Peshawar when he was down there for the tour and actually dining while sitting on the floor. Uh, now, you know, in going to a local eatery and, you know, that that's a little bit at times in some places customary to do um, in, in, you know, some parts of the subcontinent, but it's not so customary to see in England which he mentioned that it was an unbelievably great experience to do that. It sort of belabors the point here that it really seemed these guys were enjoying themselves and, and immersing themselves into Pakistani culture more than any other English side that I can think of that toured Pakistan. And to be honest, even any other English side that I can honestly think of that toured the subcontinent. Let's shift gears back to the cricket now um, and talk about the series itself, how, how it got underway. And... It was a little bit of an interesting series compared to what we see now, because normally, in a lot of tests, I'd say in a lot of tours from one country to another, international tours, uh, the program is often you have a test series um, and then you have the ODIs and then the T20s after that, or the test series, T20s, and ODIs after that. Uh, the series was, uh, obviously there weren't any T20s at this time, but the series was a little bit different in that the limited overs matches came first and then were followed by the test matches. And this was convention at the time. Uh, it was a time where ODIs had developed into a sort of marquee event to some extent, but it was still a time where test cricket was still seen being a superior format. ODIs were seen as, in some cases, a warm-up to the test series, um, even though they were events in their own right. It was in that context that what happens is kind of interesting to look at because England play Pakistan in this first ODI. They end up chasing down 300 on a flat pitch. Now, 300 might not seem like a big total today. It, it seems like a fairly standard total on a, on a good pitch, all things considered. But at the time, 300 was roughly equivalent because of the different rule changes that have been introduced since uh, that weren't there before because of other factors as well. 300 at the time was almost the equivalent to a 360, 375 total. So, to, you know, 
just imagine trying to chase down 375 today um, and, and being a, sort of the favorites to do that. It's it's not really some, no, no team would really look at themselves as, you know, a favorite in that situation, nine times out of 10. And so it was a bit of a shocking event and Pakistan were worried because they realized that the English had batsmen who could be explosive and could be problematic to their bowlers on a flat pitch. So um, a diktat of sorts, um, if you want to put it in those terms, was given by the management uh, a request, I should say, in more polite terms, to the carriers to uh, find a way to curb the batsmen, um, the English batsmen at large. And the solution that they came up with and, and the request that was sent in was to prepare low-scoring turners, or if I was to be a little less charitable in my um, description of it, rank turners, <laughs> to trouble them. Yeah, the groundsmen ended up preparing those wickets, and Pakistan won those last two ODIs of the series, and, and as a consequence, once won the series. And the reason why this matters is the Pakistani team management noticed this, and they were like, okay, we're going to send out instructions for the curators of the test matches to prepare cracked, dry pitches that we're going to take turn from day one. So, yeah, that happened. <laughs> but yeah, you know, that was not the only thing they tried to do to maximize home advantage uh, stuff. Um, you looked into the first-class matches that were played after the one-day series and stuff. You noticed something interesting about the first-class matches that were played on this tour that I think you wanted to share. Yeah, so once the limited overs leg of the series was over, we start moving to the multi-day part. And this is, this is still a time period where the tour games, they're not, they're not super important like they used to be in the 50s and the 40s. You know, you don't have the sixth test match, Yorkshire versus Australia on an Ashes tour. But these tour games are still taken reasonably seriously, unlike today where they're just a county team's third 11 against the players who are not going to play in the first test match. Uh, but yeah, at this time, again, to go with trying to catch the English by surprise, Pakistan, for, the, for these first-class touring games, they prepare pitches which were not going to be what were going to be doled out for the test matches. Instead, they prepare quite green steaming decks sort of similar to what you'd see in early season county matches today these are grounds these are pitches where matthew hoggard takes eight wickets in one match nine wickets in another and he goes for less than 40 runs across both games and yeah he's averaging like five after the tour games which is you know hoggard a great bowler but he had just debuted this previous summer and he does not play a test on this tour and for him to average five in the tour games what it tells you that Something might be up here. Now, another interesting point about these tour games, which isn't really related to the test matches, but it was still interesting to see as I was going through these. There's a lot of players you might have heard of playing in these tour games. You have Fessel Iqbal, who was 18 years old at the time. You have an 18-year-old Shoaib Malik, 16-year-old Salman Butt, 18-year-old Mohammed Sami, 23-year-old Yasser Hamid, 18-year-old Yunus Khan, 20-year-old Shahid Afridi, 18-year-old Yasir Arafat, 19-year-old Bazid Khan, 18-year-old Kamran Akmal, 18-year-old Hassan Raza, 18-year-old Imran Farhat, and a 19-year-old Tofiq Umar, in addition to some more experienced players like Salim Elahi and Rashid Latif. So again, this sort of... Again, this is this interesting period of tour matches where they are taken seriously enough to present both your best and brightest young talents as well as some older players who were trying to fight their way back into the side. You know, tour games were still considered 
a bit of a step up from domestic cricket, but not quite test level at the time. So you want players playing in them too, who are both going to take something from the experience and also older heads to sort of shepherd them along and maybe fight for their place in a way that they would not be able to in a, in a domestic first-class competition. And again, like this, these are, it's not exclusive to Pakistan, the, the profile of players here. A lot of young players, a lot of experienced players sort of jumbled together across three or four tour matches. This is something you see all the time back then. And yeah, I, I miss this period. I, I think it's really fun to see all these faces. And a lot of these players, they do become quite important, maybe not to the Pakistan national side, because uh, again, at this age, a lot of players do end up falling out. Uh, again, all over the world, not just in Pakistan. But a lot of these players do stick around the domestic circuit for the next 15, 20 years. Some of them are still playing today. Some of them are still around the squad. Some of them are still making headlines. And yeah, like this this is 2000. You don't really associate a lot of these players with the year 2000, but they were around and they were playing England at this time, though not quite for the Pakistan team. Yep. And the one thing that I did also notice, and it's, it's something uh, I find kind of interesting to talk about, given that he has a certain very important responsibility within the Pakistani cricket board at the moment, um, a certain Mr. Muhammad Wasim, who was 23 at the time, uh, had played test cricket um, and was out of the side, you could say, um, for, uh, you know, uh, I mean, he, he'd played in Australia um and he made a really good 90-odd, but, you know, he, he was starting to struggle for form, really. Uh, and, he, and he ends up captaining the PCB Patrons 11 in England's first four-day tour match uh, in the series. Um, I think it'll be also important to note that that did not end up too well for him <laughs> as an experience. He ended up losing that match and losing it pretty comfortably. But... Just an interesting tidbit that we noticed. So, yes, Mohammad Wasim, the man who is selecting Pakistan's cricket team now, with England having coming coming back in 16 years, was the guy who faced that new look English squad to Pakistan back then as well. So, just an interesting thing to think about. But yeah, so clearly there was a strategy to try to maximize home advantage uh, by Pakistan um, in the lead up to the series. As it turns out. Be careful for what you wish for, and just because you think that you can get your curators to prepare a certain type of wicket in theory doesn't mean they'll actually be able to do that in practice because this series is played in winter in Pakistan, and Pakistan is notorious for having very fickle winters in terms of just weather games that are scheduled there during that period. Um, often, you know, rain intervenes. Uh, you have situations of bad light uh, and, and things and so forth, uh, which can disrupt and interrupt with preparations of wickets and so forth. And that sort of happens in the series as well. Because what the Pakistani management clearly wanted from their curators was for the test matches, for them to be played on dry, slow, low rank toner wickets, wickets that were toning from ball one. And while they got the dry, slow, and low part, those pitches that they ended up getting prepared were largely on the flatter side. And so they didn't really end up breaking up or deteriorating, which meant that the English batsmen, who they were trying to counter by this move, ended up coming into the element, and they ended up saving the first two tests. And in the deciding test, they actually ended up winning it, in part, not entirely, but in part, because the wicket that was prepared for that third test in Karachi 
was the best prepared of the tour. It had a little bit more bounce and pace. I mean, it was still a pretty slow low wicket, as we'll come to uh, when we discuss the that test in large, but it had a little bit more bounce and pace than the first two, and it w- mattered because when England were going to go for a rapid-fire chase in the fourth innings off that third test, they found the wicket had the ability to, um, you know, you had the ability to score quickly because the ball was getting on a little bit more. It, it came onto the bat a little bit more nicely, to be specific. So the moral of this story is if you're going to try to doctor wickets, be careful for what you wish for because <laughs> you might just end up getting something that is not quite to your liking. And um, to that point, actually, you know, stuff... I was wondering, right? The, this, 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 the, since then, right? Uh, clearly, the, the 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 PCB and 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 the Pakistani cricket team must have clearly learned their lesson. They must have definitely prepared wickets that weren't attempted to be doctored in in the fashion possible. I can't think of a you know a series recently. Hmm. I can't, I can't really think of a series recently where uh, they ended up preparing some feather beds and. And the last test prepared a wicket that just had a little bit more in it and uh, got hoisted on that petard. I don't, I don't remember that happening. Do, do you know of any uh, non-subcontinental team touring Pakistan recently which had that issue? I, I can't quite tell uh, if that ever occurred since. Yeah, I'm sure if it happened on another historic tour where a team was touring Pakistan for the first time in quite a few years, it would have made headlines. Yeah, but, but I guess we'll never know because... Um, you know, I guess there weren't any test series that recently scheduled in Pakistan that involved such a team that were making a historic tour. So, but yeah, um, again, moral of the story, just make sure if you're going to doctor the wickets, do so in a way where, you know, or ask something that can be feasibly done in the time span and, and the conditions that were given. But moving on from the state of the pitches to the actual players that were going to partake in this series, so if you were... You know, looking into some of the metrics of evaluating these players at the time, how how they were doing at the time, and you notice something interesting in particular about one of the measures to evaluate players uh, in world cricket. Uh, and I'd like you to, you know, just share your thoughts about what you found. So this isn't a perfect measure of how good players are and how good they're performing, but it does give you some context because it's a long-running system and it's been retroactively applied to a lot of older series, even well, well before 2000. And it is based in some mathematics, and it does, at the very least, give you an idea of how well-regarded these players were at this specific moment in time. And that is the ICC rankings, the ICC player rankings. Now, going into this series, uh, the batting rankings included Said Anwar at third in the world, Mohamed Yusuf, who was then Yusuf Yahana, was 5th in the world. Alex Stewart was 8th, Mike, and Michael Atherton was 13th. On the bowling side, he had Wasim Akram, was 7th in the world. Andy Kattik was 8th, Darren Goff, 9th, Bakar Yunus, 12th, Sakhalin Mushtaq, 18th, Dominic Cork, 20th, and Mushtaq Ahmed was 24th. Now, some of these names do sort of stick out at you for being where they are, you know, Andy Caddick, Darren Goff, you might not really expect them to be spoken of in the same breath as Wasim Akram and Wakar Yunus, but that was uh, that was sort of how they were at the time. Wasim and Wakar were probably past their, past their best, they were getting on in age, they were starting to miss more and more games, 
with injuries or other reasons, and they were beginning to lose their pace. So while they were still two very good bowlers, they were not quite the unplayable world beaters you saw for much of the 1990s. Meanwhile, Andy Caddick and Darren Goff, they were very, very good bowlers, uh, probably a little better than some might remember them with the way of how their career sort of ended quite suddenly, but they were very solid bowlers for a very long time, and that's reflected in the rankings and also how they were generally perceived as, you know, in the press at, in 2000. Indeed, indeed. And and to that point, actually, you know, just from a statistical standpoint, if anyone's interested in, in seeing some sort of indicators of that, Wazim and Wakar, before 1996, the end of 1996, they, from my understanding, averaged, you know, Wazim averaged, I think it was something like 22, just shy of 22 or around 22, and Wakar averaged something around 20. Those numbers balloon up to become over 26, somewhere between 26 and 27 for the rest of their career. As you pointed out, they lost some pace around that time. In the case of Wakar Yunus, he came back from a second stress back uh, fracture in 1995, 1996. So he was no longer as quick as he was before then. And he had, had suffered a stress fracture even before then, uh, which had dropped his pace a tiny bit initially from when he first burst out of the scene. So he did have to learn and adapt. And, and even though he was a, became a good bowler by the end of his career and started bowling a lot better with a new ball, as a matter of fact, he did lose that skill set somewhat uh, in terms of potency that would have been perhaps a little bit more useful in the context of the series. And in the case of Wazim, you know, he had diabetes that was, you know, diagnosed around this time as well. In 1996, he suffered some injuries. He had to miss out the quarterfinal in, in the 96 World Cup, famously, because of that, Pakistan then ended up losing. So they both are no longer as good as they once were. Still quality bowlers, world-class bowlers, but just not as good as they, they once were. And then the other thing, conversely, you, I mean, you mentioned the point regarding Goff and Carrick now being somewhat underappreciated. This is actually a spur around this time, really since central contracts are introduced. And again, central contracts mean a lot for English cricket because they really do change the how the results go for a lot of talented players on the side. They end up going through one of their best patches of the career between that 1999 to about 2002-2003 period once the central contracts start emerging, really. A pivotal part of that is knowing that, hey, you know, you if you get if you have a bad performance, you're not just going to be dropped out of the side. Or even if you have a bad performance, because you're part of a central contracting system, if you have an injury, for example, you'll actually have a board that will take responsibility of taking care of you and not letting you f be fed to the wolves if that was to arise. There's an actual effort to nurture and take care of these players to get a more consistent performance out of them, and voila, when that happens... It turns out if you actually treat players a little bit better and give them a you know support system and a cushion, they tend to perform a little bit better <laughs> on average. I don't know when you know that that seems like a radical crazy idea, but um, you know at the time you know it it really was right. As much as we're joking a little bit here, it was, and 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 it turns out it worked pretty well. So, yeah, so that, that context has to be there. So even though on a name or Darren Goff and Andy Caddick don't really compare to Wazim and Wakar and in the pantheon of great bowlers, the quality of them throughout the series at large were roughly similar in some ways. Yeah, and the, talking about the rankings, it again sort of highlights what we talked about in the introduction, how Pakistan, they have better batters in this series that ends up playing out statistically better batters and better bowlers, but also just reputation-wise. 
while England's players were a little better than we might think, than we might give them credit for it now, they were still definitely the underdogs going into this box and had higher ranked batters. They had higher ranked bowlers on average, and yeah, England were definitely up against it going into this tour. Indeed, indeed. Um, and you know, regarding that point, the the other the other factor is that we tend to rate a lot of those Pakistan players highly because they had very you know stellar peaks. They had very good careers, as a matter of fact. But some of them at this point in time, I would say some of the key players in uh, in the lead up to the series, if we're talking about Pakistan's, were struggling. And the most noticeable example of this was Mushtaq Ahmed. Now, Mushtaq Ahmed was for a period during the mid 1990s only second to Warren as the best spinner, arguably, in the world. I mean, he took ended up taking five-wicket hauls everywhere, right? He took a five-wicket haul in New Zealand. He took, a f- you know, two five-wicket hauls in Australia. Uh, he took them one in South Africa. You know, he was taking, obviously, in Pakistan, and he took, five, he basically was taking five-wicket hauls in England as well. He was taking them in all different sorts of countries in the world, and often sometimes in different conditions, too. There was a 5 for he took in Hobart against a 1995 Australian team, which is a very strong team. It's one of the strongest sides in Test history. And he ended up taking one. He ended up taking a five actually in in Hobart on what was a damp sort of not very conducive or helpful pitch to spinners um, at large. It was more of a seamer friendly match, really. So he was a, a really quality bowler during that five year period, but he had started to decline in. 1999. He went to a tour to India. Pakistan actually did well in that tour. It was one of the other tours that they did well away in, in contrast to home. They ended up drawing that tour 1-1. It was a two-match test series, but Mushtaq Ahmed's contributions in the one test that he played weren't too hot, to be honest. Um, And really, ever since then, he sort of struggled. And he was, at this point, very much on the downswing in terms of form before the start of the series. And after a poor first test, uh, he ends up taking one wicket in the entire test match. He goes for 164 runs. He gets dropped. And that really affects Pakistan's plan because the burden to get wickets now comes on on these sort of slow, low, flat, not deteriorating pitches. Really ends up getting the mantle of taking those wickets really gets placed entirely almost on Saklan Mushtaq's shoulder. And to replace him in the side, Pakistan are having to call up a new leg spinner, Danish Kuneria, who comes into the side, who's really inexperienced, who, who, who literally plays his first debut test in the second test match of the series. And the all-rounder who wasn't really that bowling that much at the time in Shai the Freely. So it really does tamper with their plans somewhat, that, that real decline of one of their key players in the side and, and their performances and so forth. But Stuff, um, you, you were looking into some of England's key players and their performances in the lead up to the series and and you notice some interesting things about their um their their team's dynamics and their 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 players the, the strengths of their players around this time period that you wanted to share so yeah so two of england's most important players michael atherton and darren goff they are in very good form in 2000 but uh nasser is saying he has a disastrous year it does not get better on this tour he has a very poor tour at the bat but it's something that's been going on for uh, all year, going right back to the tour of South Africa at the beginning of the year, and takes place over all summer and continues on into this series. Now, this deprived England of you know, a solid mid-order presence that Hussein was and deprived them of a captain uh, from... you know, It certainly hits away at his confidence with the bat, and that's not really something you want to see. And it also ends up eating up some of Hussein's credibility with the selectors, but he retains enough to 
be able to keep some of the players he wants, and one of them being Graham Thorpe. After England lost at home to New Zealand the previous summer, the selectors really wanted to change house and drop a lot of senior players, but uh, Hussein convinces them to keep on Graham Thorpe, and that ends up being quite important, because Thorpe, as we'll see, is a very important batter to England in this series. Now, another issue England have, especially with regards to a tour of the subcontinent, is that they do not have many spinners, and they certainly don't have many experienced and performing spinners, certainly no one approaching Saklain Mushtaq or Mushtaq Ahmad. England's established spinners, established spinners in the 1990s, Phil Tufnell, Peter Such, and the like, they've all been dropped by this point, and so the front-line spinner, the front-runner for that position, ends up being Ashley Giles, who had only played one unsuccessful test on South Africa on a wicket that did help him a little bit, but he didn't get much uh, help out of it. He didn't get much uh, success out of it. He takes one wicket in that game, concedes 106, and he does not inspire that much confidence in England's spin stocks going into a tour of the subcontinent. Now, you know, I don't want to lump every subcontinent pitch together, but that is definitely, you know, the discussions that would go on in the media and behind closed doors and in the selection room is that we're touring Asia, we need a good spinner, who do we have? Oh, we have Ashley Giles. Doesn't inspire too much confidence, now does it? Yeah, and and, and just really quickly to that point, actually, that test match, it's a match in 1998, so it's been a couple of years since he's played a test to to begin with, right? Um, It's a test match in 1998, and Gary Kirsten ends up scoring a very long 200 or so forth, and Jack Carlos ends up scoring, uh, you know, close to 150 as well. So two really good quality batsmen make daddy clo- close to daddy hundreds or daddy hundreds against him. So again, a mark against his credibility to play, uh, do well against quality batsmen against spin in quote-unquote spin-friendly conditions. So really not inspiring confidence uh, before arriving into the series. Yeah, for sure. And the lack of a spinner really affects England's dynamics going into a tour of Asia. And another thing that really affects that is the decision to give Alex Stewart the gloves and shift him down the order. Now, Stewart, a lot of people regard him now as, you know, a decent batter for the time. England was bad in the 1990s. A batter averaging 40 is quite good. He was a good keeper. He was England's most capped player until uh, Cook overtook him. Cook and Anderson overtook him. But I feel like a lot of people underestimate how good Stewart was because when he didn't have the gloves, he was a very, very good batter. He averages almost 50 when he's opening and not keeping, which is his preferred, it was his preferred position, was to open and not have the gloves. When he opens and has the gloves, it's a much smaller sample size, he averages 46, and when he bats down the order and has the gloves, he averages 29 which uh, it really brings down his overall figures. And you wonder if that's something that England probably could have done without. Stewart is very arguably their best batter. He's certainly on past performances, on potential. Uh, at his best, he is arguably, he is, you know, you could make a good argument for him being their best batter. So on a tour like this, that's going to be tough. Do you really want to hamstring potentially your best batter by moving him into a position he doesn't like as much, making him keep instead of, you know, playing a specialist keeper. Because Stewart, again, solid glovesman, there were better keepers than him, pure keepers than him. So if you if you just badage, that could potentially have helped England a bit more than shuffling him around. And again, it also affects their team composition because now you have 
a batter who's not as good with the bat and a keeper who's not as good with the gloves as either option. Let's move on to talking about the squads themselves overall. And, you know, the first thing that I guess is a major talking point in the lead up to the series that is, I think is pretty relevant to talk about. It's something actually you noticed stuff because I, you know, I was looking through the scorecards and it, it sort of passed me by. And, and then you mentioned to me and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yunus Khan isn't present in this test series. And he isn't present in the test squad. Yeah, so Yunus doesn't play this series, but he had debuted the previous year in 1999. He scores 100 on debut and then sort of goes through that phase that a lot of players do when they break out onto the scene. They are very young. He gets some decent scores. He debuts in ODI cricket as well, but he doesn't really have another big breakout series until the series against Sri Lanka at the start of 2000, where he averages 85.5 across, I think, two or three tests. And he was a very promising batter. You could argue that he would have done quite well in this series in the middle order, especially as we'll get to later, Pakistan have some middle order issues. But uh, he's not present, and the only reason I could think of is that he was injured, because he plays one of the tour games, England's first tour game, in fact, uh, a limited overs match against the Sindh Governors Eleven. He plays in that match. And he doesn't play in the ODI series after that. He doesn't play in the test series. He doesn't play in any of the first-class warm-up matches. So if he could only have been injured or had some some other you know, reason for being unavailable for selection for almost three months. And if it was, if it was just uh, they didn't want to pick him for whatever reason, I think, I think it might have ended up being quite a big blunder. But if it was an injury, it's quite an unfortunate timing on that because he could have been quite useful to Pakistan in this series. And as we find out in the third test of this series, the Pakistani middle order, which is where Yunus Khan was batting at at this time of his career, let's just say they suffer a bit of a middle order collapse, which uh, Yunus ends up actually arresting in his debut test match. As a matter of fact, he makes a, a hundred when Pakistan uh, you know, lose a lot of cheap top order wickets and are struggling in the middle order a bit and provides a little bit of stability to, the, to that total that ends up allowing them to compete in that test match. They lose it to Sri Lanka in the end, but he, he, he played a very pivotal part. Losing him is a body blow for uh, Pakistan in the context of this series. But, you know, he's not the only sort of baffling omission in the series. Uh, there are two spinners at this time for England that are that have been representing them for a bit. Robert Croft, who is a off-spinner, he... Struggled a bit, had an on list of on and off performances for England. He got ends up getting dropped in the end uh, after 1998 for a, a while. And Phil Tufnell. Now, Phil Tufnell was a bit of a mercurial bowler, but when he was on song, he had the ability to take in favorable conditions, big, cheap hauls of, of wickets uh, against Australia in 1997. He ends up taking a, a seven for in one of the innings. He ends up taking other big hauls. So he's he's a very handy bowler, all things considered, when he gets a surface that is favorable to him. But yeah, both of them, because of lack of previous recent performances, end up getting dropped. So the guy who ends up going on tour is a leg spinner, along with Giles, I should say, is a leg spinner by the name of Ian Salisbury. Now, Ian Salisbury has a career average in the 70s as a bowler. As you can tell, didn't have a very good test career. And this series proved to be no different. And even at the time before the series got started, it was a bit of a concern because there was a feeling that the spin attack that already was a bit threadbare 
with this inclusion of Giles was even weaker because they had Salisbury. And in turn, it also puts a lot of pressure on Giles. You know, he played one test, gets dropped for two years, comes back on this tour. And now it places an emphasis on Giles to establish himself into the test side through his performances in this series. So that's also going on, but that's going on through the England camp. But you notice something else also very interesting about the test series at large in terms of the teams that England were putting out. Yeah, so England ended up picking quite a large squad for this series. One of the interesting names I saw was Paul Nixon, who does not play. Uh, he plays for England in 2007 only, and only limited overs matches. He does not play on this tour. England's large squad ended up being a little redundant because they only play 11 players all series. The same 11 players in all three test matches. Pakistan, on the other hand, play 15, making two changes from the first to the second test and from the second to the third test. And the changes Pakistan make end up changing the entire composition of their team. Again, this hints at another theme we're going to see throughout the series in that England know what they're here to do. Pakistan are sort of going with the flow and changing things quite dramatically every time. Going from the first test to the second test, all-rounder Kaiser Abbas is dropped for an out-and-out bowler in Arshad Khan, and they also make one replacement for form reasons, that is Mushtaq Ahmad being dropped for Danish Canaria. From the second test to the third test, the extra bowler, Arshad, is jettisoned for an extra batter in Imran Nazir. And once again, for injury reasons, a bowler is replaced for a bowler, Wasim is replaced for Wakar. Now we're going to come back to these later, but these decisions would end up being quite important to decide the, to decide the test series. So now moving away from the actual, you know, squad compositions of, of these two teams that are playing and, and coming on to the actual play itself, the, the test matches themselves, let's talk about the first test. So the first thing that comes to mind when you're talking about this uh, first test match that's played is it was played on an incredibly lo slow and low surface. And it was actually cracked in parts as well. But the thing about it was that the, the cracks were very narrow and they didn't really open up during the game. And they didn't really end up affecting the state of the pitch or the state of the conditions that much. And because of that, you ended up having a situation where you had a hint of tone that was available throughout the test match. But the tone was coming through very slowly. And that gave the batsman sort of ample time to adjust to the turning ball. So overall, it really was a wicket which was very unhelpful to the bowlers. Barring the odd bit of assistance that spinners were getting, bowlers had to work and toil very hard to prize out wickets on the surface. So moving on to the teams themselves, the playing 11s, we haven't mentioned him yet, but Marcus Triscothic plays in this match, he plays in this series, and this was a big, this was a big series for Triscothic. He's still new to the side, he'd only debuted the, the previous summer, and he has a middling first-class record. He was picked specifically on Duncan Fletcher's recommendation, and he had a decent debut series. He was a very unconventional pick, again, because of his very subpar first-class record. He was still averaging mid to low to mid-30s, He was, and a lot of people with higher first-class averages were passed over for him. But in Fletcher's eyes, Triscothic had passed uh, the eye test, so to speak. He looked very assured against some very high-quality bowling, particularly the way he dealt with Jack Callis in one county match. So, again, Triscothic's overall numbers were not good, but he had had quite a few impressive performances in a short time as an international player. But importantly, all of these were on all these were on more quick surfaces against very good pace attacks. He had not yet had much success against spin, which was expected to play a big part in this series. 
So how would England and Triscotha get along facing a very good spin attack in in uh, Pakistan and Saklain Mushtaq in particular? And if uh, England were to succeed, it would definitely help if one of their openers, a young opener, uh, performed. And, you know, to that point, right, a lot of the wickets... Uh, it, it was a very interesting challenge for Triscothic at large, right? Because, um, you know, even the wickets that he'd played on that weren't so quick in England in, in his debut series, for example, against the West Indies for the most part, those wickets, even when they weren't quick, they were doing a lot for the the seamers and, 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 and swingers and in, you know, the opposition bowling lineups. So he really hadn't encountered a actual surface that was very favorable to spinners at large. So it really was a gamble from you know, Fletcher in, in that regard. Um, fortunately, I guess, to some extent for Pakistan, I mean, for England, I should say, um, Matthew Hoggard, who's in the squad and averages, as you were mentioning stuff, negative five <laughs> in the first-class matches, they don't decide to pick him. They decide to go with their opening established pair of Andy Caddick and Darren Goff. And it's a gamble that, on, on first appearance, given the, the superlative form that Hoggard was in, you would think that it was gamble that, you know, they would have taken easily. But they rightfully, it, it seems, decided, hey, we're getting wickets that really aren't re- going to be representative of what we're going to actually see in the Test Match series. They're really, you know, uncharacteristically green. So we're going to stick with our guns and go with our established base attack. So it was a good call from them in, in that regard as well. The Scothic is relatively new to the side. As it turns out in the series, he doesn't end up contributing that much or doing that well, but he probably doesn't have as bad of a performance as a new cricketer as the man that does make his debut. Kaiser Abbas, turns out, didn't have such a great <laughs> debut test, did he? Yeah, Kaiser Abbas, all-rounder, he does not have a very lucky debut. He only scores two. Uh, again, he's an all-rounder, so it's not a great score. And he bowls 16 overs. He's quite economical. They only go for 35. Like, it's not the worst debut. And he does do his job as all-round left-arm orthodox bowler and all-rounder just to fill in some gaps. Uh, but he does end up dropping a very important catch off Graham Thorpe. He's at slip. Thorpe edges it to him. It's dropped. Thorpe, who's on two at the time, goes on to make 118. So it's probably not the only reason he was dropped for the following test, and we can't really say for certain if it's definitive or not, but it probably did play a part in why he is dropped for the next test. Now, Abbas, he overall, over his career, he averages 35.5 with the bat, which is okay. It's not terrible. It's not amazing for a batter in the Gaidiasm Trophy pre-2003 at a time when most tracks are generally a lot flatter than they ended up becoming in the late 2000s and for most of the 2010s. But he does average 29 with the ball as a left-arm spinner, which again is quite reasonably good. So he's a solid all-rounder, but this ends up being, I believe, his only test match, and it's quite unlucky that uh, it ends up going for him this way. Indeed, indeed. And yeah, he he perhaps deserved more chances than this one-off, but the fact that he put on that drop is not as, I guess, um, as interesting to me as the fact that he put it down at slip. Because generally, in very reliable, solid teams, you tend to have a designated slip fielder. And that slip fielder tends to be somebody who has been in the side, who has some interplay with the wicketkeeper, so he knows exactly, you know, Dan, what the positioning and so forth is. So at least in a modern 
test uh, cricketing sense, you generally don't put stick in a debutante in, and especially one who's a spinner, a, 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 you know, a finger spinning one, where the fingers are pretty important. So if they take a slip catch, it could be injured, it could cause them problems. You don't put one of those guys in a slip fielding position. And that sort of muddled thinking of, hey, there's this new guy uh, playing his first test, let's just stick him into the somewhere in the field, which is probably the most precarious situation to put him in, kind of, you could tell, you could almost say as a bit of a, it, it sort of uh, foreshadows the sort of general issues of instability and lack of clear rules set for cricketers in the Pakistani camp during the series. And and sort of just also highlights that just n- those natural issues at large of a team being in transition. But coming on to the match itself stuff, England end up getting first use of what is a pretty good wicket. And how do they end up doing? So England end up grinding Pakistan around both at the top of the order and in and at the bottom, but Pakistan do run through the middle order reasonably quickly. Poor Pakistani fielding does not help with uh, some of the tribulations that England put them through, especially on a pitch that's not offering that much help for the bowlers. Now, Sakulain Mushtaq takes eight wickets, and he takes the only eight wickets that Pakistan get before England declare while eight down. So he was definitely on for a 10-wicket haul, but uh, we'd end up having to wait until 2022 for someone to follow up Kumble. Indeed. And, and to that point of the 10 wickets, uh, you know, the, the poor feeling that you were mentioning earlier, right, stuff. It should be noted that Saklan, to some extent, is also to blame for that. He did drop two cotton bowl chances of Craig White, both when he was at on when he was at 22 and 69. And he, he would end up getting a, a pretty good total in the end, a big 50 at hand. In his defense, though, they they were pretty difficult chances, so it wasn't just a lollipop like opportunity that he like you know flubbed in both cases. But yeah, yeah, it, it it's a bit disappointing because he did really bowl well, and uh, you know you you were looking into his performances a little bit more during this match, and you you found some really interesting things about how he was bowling as well to get those wickets on such a not very helpful surface as well. Yeah, so just for the sheer stamina required. This was a remarkable bowling performance. He bowled 74 overs to get those eight wickets, again, on a fairly unreceptive surface. And I suspect that innings like these, bowling 74 overs across two days, that probably did not help his knees and his legs, and probably played quite a bit of part in a lot of the joint problems he would have later in life that forced him into a bit of an early retirement, and he still talks about it to this day, that he still suffers from some of these issues. Another really uh, impressive thing about how he bowled was that he was bowling quite quickly through the air. He was exerting himself quite a bit throughout these throughout this marathon of a bowling performance to get those revs on the ball and to get to get him moving quite quickly through the air so he could get as much out of the pitch as he could. Again, a very benign surface that wasn't going to help him that much. So he had to really push himself to get everything done. And and you know to that point actually when I was seeing the footage of this match, he ended up clocking 74 miles per hour at one point against with like a quicker ball and that's just amazing for for a spinner right and some people might say hey you know this was a time where speed guns weren't as reliable as they were are today you know there's some methodology errors and so forth and i would buy that a little bit more in the context of him clocking that speed in this match if he wasn't consistently hitting the 60 65 mile per hour mark for a lot of his deliveries right and yeah i mean just 
having gone through and watched that performance again, it was really remarkable, right? Because it wasn't just that he was bowling, you know, he was, he was getting revs on the ball and he was trying to do a lot, you know, get as much as he could off the surface. He was making subtle variations as well. Sometimes he was adjusting his flight. He was, he was varying the, the dusra up pretty cleverly a lot of the time. Sometimes even the angle that he was coming in and delivering the ball at the crease, he was subtly just shifting that a little bit. Not massively, mind you. It wasn't one of those situations where he was like bowling from close to the stumps and then immediately going wide to the stumps. But there were just some subtle changes that he was he was using to just try to create that doubt in the batsmen's minds on a pitch where more, for the most part they could hit through the line and, and feel fairly confident doing so. So all in all, a really good performance, and it really defines the, the first innings of this first test, even though England are, overall, you would have to say, in the green uh, in terms of their performance as far as it's concerned. But yeah, coming on to the second innings, um, stuff, Afridi and Enzamam look like changing that equation a little bit. <laughs> yeah, they are playing on a completely different track to what everyone else was playing on, and that includes England's first innings, because England made quite hard work of getting to where they did. Afridi and Inzamam, they're going quickly, they're hitting a lot of boundaries. These are really high strike rate innings of substance. The going is quite tough for the rest of the Pakistan team once Afridi and Inzamam both get out, and the lower middle order takes a huge tumble. Pakistan go from 199 for 2 to 273 for 8. But Yusuf, again, he's still Johanna at this point, and uh, Saklain Mushtaq, they grind England down with a fight back at the very end, and they take Pakistan to a safe score. After batting for several hours, once again, Saklane's knees probably could use a rest at some point. <laughs> and you know, perhaps most importantly for Pakistan in this uh, match, in addition to getting Pakistan to a safe total, they do take Pakistan to a safe period to give the batting back to England, by which point they really can't lose. Indeed. And England's response sort of helps them in the, their goal to probably try to save the match at, at this stage. Because uh, it's a pretty watchful, sort of patient performance from the English batsmen at large. And really that's down to the fact that both teams are just running through the motions. They don't think that they have enough time to force a result. And so they're just kind of just trying to play as slowly as possible and, and not taking too many risks and just, you know, trying to just let the match like come naturally veer to the end of its course. And yeah, in a, in a pattern that, you know, the, the only thing really memorable about that third innings, to be honest, is... There was a pattern that was starting to develop by the later innings of the tests during the series. It, and it was specifically about Wazim Akram in the couple of in the test matches that he played. He was hitting English batsmen in the arm and, and in other places um, while bowling short pitch deliveries. And as we mentioned a little bit earlier, Wazim was no longer bowling at lightning pace or really what you'd call express pace, really. He did bowl hostile and well-directed. It was well-targeted and so forth. But... He was really bowling at this point around the mid-80s, to be honest, in, in terms of speed, really, like uh, 135 kilometers per hour, around that range on average at this point of his career. But he ends up hitting Nasir Hussain in the arm, and the reason why he ends up hitting him is not because he's hurrying him up for pace as much as the fact that the pitch itself is so sluggish that the ball is coming on sometimes slower than is actually anticipated for the batsman to play a certain stroke. So they're, they're almost through their stroke, right? They're through a pull or through a offensive shot, and then and then the ball comes. So that ends up becoming a pattern, as we'll see in the, the second test as well. But yeah, that's pretty much where the match sort of draws to a close for the first test. So at the end of the first test, both teams have 
basically traded blows and haven't really gotten a definitive result out of anything. But England have, for the overall, acquitted themselves pretty well. Because uh, there was an assumption that they would collapse to Mushtaq, Ahmed, and, and the, the, the vaunted Pakistani bowling attack. But by and large, they didn't do that. They they put up a pretty good total in the first you know, innings of the first test uh, and, and really looked like they were a competitive side capable of, if not necessarily outright winning at this point, at least putting up a really sh- solid fight against what was a pretty respected and, and feared team, uh, given the circumstances. So there wasn't really a result in their favor. They would have felt that if you believe in the contact, concept text or concept of psychological advantage, they would have taken that psychological advantage going into the second test. So we move on to the second test. The interesting thing or the, the thing that really crops into your mind when you talk about this test, again, has to do with the pitch. It's a surface that's also pretty sluggish and flat, like the first test match. It doesn't really deteriorate throughout the game. It's it's really not doing all that much. So the, overall, the actual pace of the test match is dictated to some extent by the pitch because it is pretty slow. But what is more memorable than even the pitch for this test match is the outfield. And it's a much quicker outfield in comparison to the one that was served up in the first test. So it you could actually hit through the line and, and you could get value for your shots a little bit more than in the first test where it really was a bit of a struggle. Like Graham Thorpe in that 100 that he makes in the first innings of the first test, we, we should point out, he only scored two fours in that entire 100 because it... You know, most of them were him run, running a, very hard between the wickets on a surface where the, he would play certain shots. Uh, he would play defensively, but when even when he would play certain shots, they wouldn't really rocket to the fence as such. So you do get to see a bit more stroke play being rewarded in this test match, but it's still a pretty, it's still a pretty you know sluggish, low su- surface, which isn't really helping out the bowlers that much. You know, the, the pitch is not the only factor of interest um, leading up to this test match. There's also a couple of milestones for two cricketers from the Pakistani camp. Yeah, so we mentioned some of the changes to Pakistan's team earlier on. One of them changes the composition of the team. Kaiser Abbas goes out, Arshad Khan comes in. But Arshad is not the milestone we want to talk about. One of them, one of the milestones is that this is Wasim Akram's 100th test match. And it's a pretty big deal not many Pakistani players reach 100 tests. So Wasim, he is a proper legend of Pakistani cricket, and this is one of those crowning moments, right? Like, Imran Khan didn't reach 100 test matches. Wakar Yunus doesn't. Uh, no, Wakar Yunus does, but later. And Wasim Akram gets there before him, which uh, I'm sure is a personal achievement for him. But the other milestone is that Danish Canaria makes his debut in this test match, replacing Mushtaq Ahmed. Indeed, and and I'll interject here for a little bit because a lot of our listeners who are tuning into this this episode of our podcast, they probably don't recall what Canaria exactly was like. A lot of them have probably seen Yasser, though, who is a famous leg spinner to emerge out of Pakistan. So, for those who haven't really seen Canaria bowl that much, Nate, how would you describe his style of bowling and and sort of compare it to Yasser, or for that matter, the guy he replaced in this series? So Canaria was pretty tall for a spinner, and as a result, he was able to get some decent bounce, probably a lot more than Yasser and Mushtaq were able to get. Unlike Yasser, Canaria had a very good googly, and I think Richie Benno once described it as one of the best disguised googlies he had ever seen. Yeah, I remember that. But Mushtaq, as we mentioned earlier, Mushtaq was a special bowler. 
and he added a googly that was just as good, if not better. And critically, one of the one of Canary's biggest weaknesses that, unlike Mushtaq, he was not able to flight the ball and make it make it drift as much in the air. And I think this makes him much less of a tricky operator than someone like Mushtaq, who was very good at drift, very good at getting motion in the air, and. This made him a lot less effective on pitches that were not helping him as much. And again, one of Canary's biggest strengths was his bounce, but that sort of relies on the pitch a lot more than something like getting driftwood. And on pitches like these, very slow, very low, that bounce was not going to help him very much. So while the move may have seemed to be a good one, you're replacing one leg spinner for another, you know, an old leg spinner aging out, not doing well for a very promising young bowler, uh, it probably doesn't end up being as positive a move as it may have seemed at first. And I think Pakistan did downgrade. Despite Mushtaq getting on in age, I think this was a major downgrade, especially for the pitches that were they were going to play on. Indeed. But yeah, getting to the details of the, the match itself, it's an interesting match, and we were discussing um, in the lead-up uh, to preparation for this podcast, you mentioned that the first memory that you have of this test match is actually... Uh, <laughs> It's not like like that significant in the grand scheme of things, but it's just really funny. So I'd love <laughs> for you to just fill in our listeners a little bit about that. So in the first innings, Inzamam, he gets out in a very bizarre manner. Inzamam, certainly no stranger to freak dismissals, and this is one I don't see as much, but I think it definitely belongs on there. If you get a chance, uh, please do check it out. And again, like this may not have had that big of an impact on the match itself because Pakistan do quite well without Inzamam, but he was their premier batter at the time. He had been for quite a while. He has not made the triple century yet, but that comes soon after. And for England to get probably the batter they're most worried about out this quickly, it uh, definitely helps lift them, although that feeling doesn't last for too long. Indeed. But yeah, that aside, the rest of the innings wasn't really all that memorable or much to write home about for England because Pakistan ended up scoring pretty quickly out of the gate. They only slow down a bit after Lahi and Anwar are both dismissed and which you would say is a pretty reckless fashion. England ended up persisting largely with their pacers as their main weapon weapons in this test match. Goff, after a wickedless first test, actually does a lot better, but Caddick, in part due to not some great umpiring or favorable umpiring to him, I should say, and the flatness of the pitch doesn't really do all that well. But the guy who really takes home the honors from this test is actually Ashley Giles. He ends up being used more as a in, in terms of a holding fashion during this innings, but he ends up getting most of the wickets. For a guy who isn't really initially seen as the, the main spearhead or the strike strike bowler for a side, he ends up doing pretty well in, in this innings. Yeah, so in contrast to Giles, England's second spinner, Ian Salisbury, he does not have a good performance. Salisbury barely gets used at all, and the few times he does end up getting used, he bowls quite short and gets dispatched quite easily. And he also bowls a little slow through the air and generally just looked out of rhythm and the lack of overs he got probably didn't help him build that rhythm. And yeah, it's a multifaceted performance, right? Because he's not going to build the rhythm if he's not going to bowl. But whenever he does bowl, he releases all the pressure. So again, just not a very helpful performance either way. Indeed. And it really seems like his regular problems at the international level sort of resurfaced. Because uh, one of the uh, like common criticisms that were applied to him at the test level was that he'd often bowl a line outside off stump and that wouldn't really threaten the right-handed batsman all that much 
especially on wickets that were stereotypically subcontinental or in, in theory favorable to spinners, right? Because uh, the demand of the hour on a lot of those wickets is to bowl wicket to wicket. It's to bowl quicker through the air a little bit. It's to, you know, hit that length pretty consistently. And yeah, bowling outside off uh, floaty deliveries wasn't really going to get you that many wickets uh, given the, the, the context. Yeah, and I mean, the other recollection I have of just watching uh, the footage of this innings was that he was often getting dispatched when he was trying to bowl his googly. And it made sense because when you look back at like the criticism that was applied to him at the time, and you can see this in the footage as well, that at the highest level, he had a wrongan that was very easily telegraphed with his arm because it would come from a much higher angle than a stock delivery. So overall, definitely... His performance was the disappointment of this match. So, you know, in, in, especially in contrast to Giles, who bowled really well. And that contrast would be maintained and, and sort of heightened as the tour went on as well. Overall, England struggle in the first innings, but they make a, a bit of a, a fight of it still. They, they, they show persistence in the face of having the wrong side of luck, if, if you will. But yeah, moving on to England's reply in the second innings. The Pakistani Pacers, who are bowling in this match, Wazim at this point, are able to get some variable bounce off a service that was sluggish. So you, you actually end up seeing Traskothic getting hit a couple of times, trying to duck bouncers and pull because of the sort of unpredictability and when the ball is coming through. It's a bit of a two-paced surface in that sense. And, and in general, because of those early indications that this wasn't going to be as easy of a wicket to time shots on by the time England came into bat, their batting response was a bit more watchful than Pakistan's. Yeah, definitely. They're playing a lot more patient, and as a result, there isn't really too many memorable moments from this innings. But one thing one thing that stood out to me when watching the highlights of this was when Nasser Hussain is given out, He it's a poor decision from Buckner, because Hussain has quite clearly middled the ball into his pad. And Hussain almost thinks that the Pakistani bowlers, the Pakistani fielders are appealing a bit of as a joke because it's so obviously not out so he's laughing as he he's you know smiling as he looks down at the ball then as he looks up he suddenly sees the buckner has raised his finger and he is just completely bewildered as to how buckner has come to that conclusion it's a it's a really funny it's like you can see the change in his expression like almost instantaneously as soon as he sees the finger coming up from the wide-brimmed hat of stephen buckner and yeah it's a very high high comedy moment in a innings that didn't really have too much going for it. It's not the only howler in this series, as we'll point out. He gets another absolutely shocking, stinking decision in the, in the following test. But yeah, really, really funny moment in what is otherwise a very dull innings for the most part. Yeah, and another thing I want to talk about real quick. We talked about Salisbury earlier, so let's talk about his Pakistani equivalent, Canaria, who we mentioned a little bit in the introduction. Now, he was, again, Pakistan's big gambler for this game because they had dropped the highly experienced but on the wane Mushtaq Ahmad for him, and Canaria ends up doing quite poorly. His uh, control was largely poor for the role that was expected of him to absorb the pressure and to keep the pressure on in the same way that Siklain Mushtaq was doing from the other end. And But in contrast, he ended up frequently releasing that pressure. Although, to be fair, that poor control arguably helped him get the wicket of Alex Stewart later on. Because Stewart, he was put under a lot of pressure, struggling for runs. And he sees a moment to release that pressure, which is against Canaria, and goes for wild slog that ends up getting mistimed and caught to give Canaria not his first wicket, but one of his first wickets. Now let's turn to the third innings of this test match. And 
Pakistan are marginally behind on their first innings total. And so their response ends up getting to a position in the test match where they're in a successful position where they have saved the chance of collapsing quickly and, and, and getting into a really st- solid position to enforce the win. That's their their uh, approach. And so the innings ends up getting dominated by Abdul Razak, the all-rounder, and he ends up scoring his maiden test 100. And it's a it's a very interesting innings to talk about because it sort of fits in the nature of what we've been talking about in the series and that it, it really defies conventional expectations because Razak's innings, contrary to what his perception would be before the series and, and after it as well, it was actually a pretty slow innings, all things considered, because his reputation was of a gunslinging, sort of aggressive all-rounder. I mean, he in, in this very same year, he becomes famous for just earlier on in this year for hitting five fours against McGrath, who was like the best pace bowler at the time in the world. So he really has this reputation of being a incredibly, incredibly aggressive player. But his innings here ends up being, he gets 100 not out of 225 balls, which is fairly slow you would say, for uh, somebody with that sort of reputation. And there are pluses and negatives to this, I would say. The plus side of it really was that the innings was important because Pakistan was slightly, you know, they were just marginally behind. So they weren't out of the game entirely, but they probably did want to get to a good total. Uh, it was very important for them to get it to a good total. And for him to basically be the anchor on w- around which the innings was sort of built and constructed, uh, it does show Razak's capability to produce substantial innings, which was something that people did have doubts for precisely because of that overly aggressive nature that he was demonstrating in ODIs at the time, or at least the reputation of him de- demonstrating that during the time. So in that sense, it, it shows signs of him being able to have what is referred to as test match temperament. But on the not-so-positive side, the innings, it really could be considered a bit slower than it should have been because the wicket in the third innings was, apart from that slight sluggishness, was a pretty flat wicket. And more critically, the innings ended up taking so much time because to the point where Pakistan had to, they only ended up having 57 overs to bowl out England. And if he could have scored even a little bit quicker, they might have had a little bit more time to actually bowl out England rather than the next to impossible situation that they ended up being in, where they would have less than two sessions effectively to, to bowl out a side, which is difficult to do even in the most favorable of circumstances. Overall, a, a good innings, but not without its flaws. And coming into the fourth innings, as it turns out, England have 57 overs to survive or 244 runs to win. And in reality, England don't even try. So it's mainly just Pakistan having 57 overs to bowl England out. Critically, it ends up being Atherton who puts up a watchful half-century to see them to safety. And this would perhaps be a glimpse of things to come going into the third test. Now another notable thing about this is that Canaria barely bowls, and you know, I don't want to bully the guy on debut, but like, he was a very big part of Pakistan's strategy for this for this game. So to see how he doesn't end up being trusted much to keep pressure on and take wickets at the end, and instead gets passed over for Shahid Afridi, who ends up bowling quite a bit of overs that probably would have otherwise gone to Canaria, is interesting to see. Now, Afridi, at this point, he was in that phase of mainly being seen as a batsman. This is after, you know, his fastest century, fastest ODI century. He'd become an established opener in both tests and ODIs at this point, so he was barely bowling. But he bowls in this series, and he bowls quite well. He bowls in this match, and he bowls quite well. Uh, he even takes a couple of wickets. And could this perhaps change something for the following test. 
perhaps a temp box and into changing the combinations again and trust Afridi's bowling to make up for the lack of another bowler. Hmm. So we're on to the final test of this test series. Going into it, it's all square, 0-0, zero, zero, right? So there's no result that's come through in the past two tests. Very much a stalemate. But that stalemate's going to get broken in this test. And part of the reason why it's going to get broken comes down to the pitch. Compared to the first two test matches, there's a bit more of a consistent bounce to the surface. I mean, we mentioned a little bit earlier than the first and the second test. It was a bit sluggish at times, and especially in the second test, it was a little bit more two-paced, and, and the bounce was not always entirely predictable, even though it was, because of that slow nature, generally not that threatening to the batsman. But, but in this match, you do get a little bit more consistent bounce, and, and you also get a little bit more pace as well, a greater pace. But overall, it's still a pretty slow wicket, and really, it's a wicket where it's solid for a batsman once they're set, but it takes some time getting used to. And and there's no real demons in it, but runs can be tough and you, you do have to graft for them somewhat. And that does really matter because that does really play a factor on how the match turns out. The pitch itself, a more interesting one than you that you could say than the first two tests. And the teams themselves are a bit more interesting than the ones that you could say in the first two tests, uh, mainly on the Pakistani side. Yeah, so England once again are unchanged as they had been from the, in the second test as well. But Pakistan, as we mentioned earlier, they make two changes. One of them is Wakar Yunus coming in for Wasim Akram, who pulls out with an injury. And there were some suspicions that it was potentially a rift that may have caused him to not want to play with Wakar, as they were both vying for the captaincy. But either way, Wasim not playing is a big loss for Pakistan. And it makes them rely more on bowlers like Canaria, who are clearly adjusting to test cricket, and helps, and, uh, you know, it makes them miss the option to potentially test Atherton with back of length deliveries and shorter pitch deliveries, more uh, bouncier types of balls, which Atherton himself had been struggling with in particular because of a back injury, but it was also the type of delivery that caused Hussain to retire out in the first test match. And this is also part of a prolonged goodbye for Wasim Akram from test cricket. He only plays four more test matches after this game. Yeah, you could, the signs were always there. They had been for a while. Again, as we mentioned before, Wasim and Ricard, this is an era where they miss a lot of test matches. For Wasim, this is a really big one for him to miss. It might not have ended up making that big of a difference in the grand scheme of things, but you know, just the fact that he is missing more and more games and Ricard is missing more and more games, it does tell you that this specific era is starting to come to an end. But Pakistan's other change, as we alluded to earlier, a batter in Imran Nazir comes in for the off-spinner Arshad Khan. Now, we had neglected to talk about Arshad in the previous match because his performance just sort of goes under the radar, and that was sort of what he was brought in to do. Arshad's inclusion gave Pakistan six bowling options in the second test, one of them being the underused Afridi, who was not expected to bowl that much, but ended up bowling quite a bit in the second innings, but in addition you had two fast bowlers in Wasim and Razak, you had two frontline spinners in Mushtaq and Canaria, you had Arshad as the third spinner, and then Afridi as uh, the extra reserve spinner that wasn't expected to be used. But Afridi bowling in the second innings and doing quite well ended up giving Pakistan perhaps the confidence to use Afridi as more of a frontline option, and as a result they could drop one of the bowlers that wasn't being used that much, mainly the spin bowler in Arshad and instead play an extra batter to strengthen the batting lineup. You know, Arshad had not done poorly in the previous test. He'd gone for only 60 runs and 38 overs, very economical, and took three wickets as well, two of which were frontline batters, including the inform Thorpe. Now, Brady's bowling was not as controlled as Arshad, and 
dropping the extra spinner for the extra batter could perhaps play a role in the series in this match in particular on a pitch where it was a little bouncier so a tall spinner like Arshad could have been quite useful on that and also the nights in Pakistan are very long especially this time of year it could be helpful to have a reliable spin option absolutely but you know as baffling as that decision was it's not as baffling as the decision that I'm also about to mention because Nazir didn't only get included into the side as a extra batsman in the middle order or something he was included as an opener and the reason why this matters is Afridi ends up getting shifted down to number 8 why 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 what purpose did this serve Afridi at this point he had never played low down the order now a lot of people assume because of his odi exploits where he bats a lot of the times when he wasn't opening he batted very low down the order and later on in his test career sometimes when he would bat in the middle order that that was common that was not common at this period of time at all it just wasn't and even though he did have a sec- a lean test with the bat in the second test of the series in the first test he scored a 50 at a strike rate of over 80 you would take that especially on a slow surface you know so he didn't do all that badly in the context of the series in the the limited opportunities he had to bat and more importantly he was averaging pretty well with the bat as an opener at that point he had you know at, at that point he had averaged 39 with a bat and the only time his average nose dived beforehand was when he had batted in one or two innings near his debut really when he'd just been introduced in the side at number 6 so to put it in very blunt terms this was a very stupid decision <laughs> there's no <laughs> real logic to it there's no thought process that can really justify or explain this uh, from a purely practical perspective and really goes to show the muddle thinking that Pakistan have around Afridi and a lot of their all-rounders in this time and it also just reflects really badly on them the management at large in terms of throwing a pretty much a young player at this time into the deep end because Imran Nazir hadn't played that many test matches either he hadn't done that great in the test matches that he'd played earlier as well for the most part so all in all just one of the most ridiculous decisions uh from a team you know playing 11 standpoint that i've probably seen in any series <laughs> we come to the first innings and from some really i guess shocking decisions uh with the bat in terms of in selections and and so forth from pakistan let's talk about a somewhat less out and out shocking decision from nasir sen in that first innings stuff he ends up using a very unlikely bowler first up when he's trying to <laughs> get a wicket. Yeah, it is a very hot day in Karachi in for this test. It reaches 41 degrees Celsius at some point. So, it's a really long day in the field for England. And as a result, Nasser turns to an unlikely source. He turns to Marcus Trescothic's military mediums quite early on as well. And it even produces a wicket, quite surprisingly. And it it works. But uh aside from that, England are put to the sword on a very hot day. by two very wonderful players playing at their absolute best. Yusuf and Inzamam are totally masterful here. They both score centuries, almost faultless centuries as well. There's a 259 run partnership between them. You know, Yusuf and Inzamam are two very interesting. It's a very interesting pair because they have a lot of very funny dismissals when playing together, but when things come off like they did in this partnership it is it's wonderful to watch these two very technically phenomenal batters and 
this is a point where they're both yeah they they're both becoming very dominant players at this point in their careers. But on either end of that 259 run partnership, it's not good for Pakistan. The partnership begins when Pakistan are 64 for three, when Inzamam comes in at number five, and after Yusuf is dismissed by a fantastic return catch from Giles, Inzamam is also dismissed soon after by a great catch from Triscothic, and both of those dismissals play a part in a remarkable collapse from Pakistan, where they lose 82 runs for for seven wickets, and it's a score much lower than they would have expected with how uh, with how those two were going. Indeed. We turned to England's response in the second innings, and uh, there's a... I'm trying to find euphemistic ways of putting this, but it's a little bit on the blander side of uh, <laughs> test innings that are played, just in terms of stroke play, especially after the exhibition of batting that was demonstrated by uh, Yusuf and Inzamam in in the first innings. But it, it is memorable uh, for a couple of things, one of them being a absolutely fantastic catch from M- the guy who just made his way into the side for this final deciding test, Imran Nazir. He catches the Scothic and, uh, or, and pulls off a really good catch, a really fabulous catch, really. And Atherton and Hussain are the ones who end up dominating England's first innings total and, and building a good total for them. And they play pretty slowly, you would have to say. Athen actually plays makes a incredibly slow hundred. It's I think it has a strike rate close to thirty. It's pretty dodgy stuff. But England do battle really well. They grind Pakistan down, and what they end up doing is they end up getting England to basically a par total within England. And and that's important because uh, Hussein's mindset when playing in the subcontinent during this period, which he articulates. You know, he articulated at the time and he would go on to articulate since was generally in the subcontinent when you have a prototypical subcontinental pitch, which is to say a pitch that's pretty flat for the first three or four days that's slower and on the lower side, you can't really force the pace of the game as easily. So in those sort of situations, you know, the main goal is to just stay in the game. If you're responding or you're in reply to a big total first up, you need to make sure that you put up, uh, take out as much time as you need, but you need to get somewhere near that target where the difference is pretty much minimal. Because come days four and five, you start to see a a pitch that will deteriorate in the back half of the game and it'll bring your spinners and and players at large into play and you can get something out of that as a result. So that that was sort of the mindset of Hussain and and he did a really good job in making sure that his batsmen, in with the assistance obviously of Thorpe and Atherton in the series, batted out time. And and in this innings in particular, even though he had a pretty poor series, he made sure from his end that he batted out a significant portion of time as well. And doing that, England get a par total to Pakistan, 20 runs behind England's at the end of the day. So really, going into the, the third innings of this test, both sides are relatively evenly matched. But by the end of the third innings, that's not so much the case anymore. Yeah, so the third innings begins midway through day four, and one of the problem people from the first innings, Inzamam, he is dismissed for not much by a real screamer of a ball from the man that was a little overlooked coming into the series, Ashley Giles. He gets one to turn really sharply from outside leg, and it barely hits the top of off. You know, like a... Shane Warren-esque, you would say. Indeed, indeed. And day four ends with Pakistan. They're reasonably secure in their position. They're 88 ahead, seven wickets to go. But the problem is that it doesn't feel like a winnable total. But it also feels like 
a score where if you collapse, then then uh, it becomes quite easy for England to chase down. So going into day five, at least Pakistan caught in two minds about how to approach day five. Should they uh, go and attack, get a big score on the board, and then declare and try and force a win because the series is still nil-nil. You can't really play for a draw anymore. This is last chance saloon for any results. But at the same time, it's risky, so instead should they try defending and play for the draw. But playing for a draw is also quite risky because if, if you're not making runs and the wickets still come, then you don't have any runs left to defend. And as a result, Pakistan do get caught up in this massive conundrum. And the wheels really begin to fall off, with Yusuf and Elahi being dismissed quite reckless shots, nine balls apart, following a run of several boundaries where they were trying to up the scoring rate. Pakistan lose 6 for 30 in 19 overs, and now it's game on. Indeed, it it, it is very much game on. And, and before we get to the exhilarating fourth innings that really conclusively decides this test. Just a quick note also uh, at the end of day four, there's a, there's a really funny incident where um, apparently the local press in Karachi, there was some, uh, I think it might have been in a, you know some local Pakistani press that was not out of Karachi, but but there's some, some local press man imploring from Pakistan to play well and for their batting to do well because he wants, quote unquote, I mean, I remember the quote roughly, he wanted to make sure that Pakistan don't play like a bunch of jokers. <laughs> <laughs> they don't bat like a bunch of jokers, and as it turns out, they kind of end up not, <laughs> not really like heeding that request. <laughs> so, but yeah, that 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 element of you know media pressure probably also got to them. Apart from just being caught in two minds and and having a little bit of complacency, thinking we're not going to lose this test match. We can't really lose this test match, but we don't know how to play this. So, just an interesting little tidbit to point out leading up to that disastrous symbolic collapse in the third innings. But yeah, coming to the fourth innings now, because of this collapse, the target that England have to chase down is 176 from 44 overs. And even though it's not really that dark when the inning starts, England's inning starts, it's not apparent on the broadcast for so for sure. By the end of it, it really does become almost like pitch black. <laughs> and that matters because as it turns out, bowlers don't exactly tend to do that well when the conditions are completely pitch back, black, and neither do wicket keepers. So early on, Wakar and Rizaku come out with a new ball. They're a little wayward, and that perhaps comes down to not really having a plan on what to do. And it also doesn't help that they just spent 180 overs in the field over the last couple of days, and uh, they did not get that much time to rest with how quickly Pakistan's third innings ended up going down. There's also a lot of defensive fields from the captain, Moin Khan, and a lot of changing of the fields to waste time. And this begins to annoy Steve Buckner, who starts telling Moin Khan to hurry things up and does give Moin Khan an official warning at some point. The chase stalls for a little bit after Athrin and Triscothic are dismissed, but after a while, Thorpe and Hick, once they get a little bit set, start hitting runs from the leg spinners. Indeed, and, and in all of this, it should be said that you mentioned Moin's tactics as a, as a skipper, but he really has a pretty bad match with the gloves. It's about as much of a nightmare as you could expect as a wicketkeeper of a, of a test match because he, he lets a lot of buys flow. He really fails the ball to grab it, to, to you know run out batsmen when they're out, outside of the crease. He knocks over the bail sometimes even when the ball, even before the ball is bowled, and he also drops Nasser Hussain. 
Again, this matters a lot because Rashid Latif, we mentioned he, him being in the tour matches. He doesn't really get a chance to play in the test matches. But one of the common complaints of Moin Khan in general during this time was even though he was an aggressive batsman, he was a good lord of batsman for the fight, he also was a pretty mediocre keeper with the gloves, especially in comparison to Rashid Latif, who was one of the best glovesmen that Pakistan's ever produced purely from a, you know, a, a glovesman's perspective. So, yeah, not a great match for him. Saklan, it should be mentioned, is toiling away all this time. But because of the tactics that uh, Moin is setting up, he's bowling pretty much negative lines to a negative field. And yeah, it, it ends up getting really quick, dark pretty quickly in this Asian winter, as you would expect. And Moin is constantly trying to appeal for the light. And Buckner, because he sees the time wasting going on, is like, nope. We're going to get the minimum overs in. And yeah, I mean, it's not only the Pakistanis, it should be mentioned. The English batsmen also are complaining that they can't really see the ball. <laughs> Pretty much everyone can't see the ball. Even the commentators complain about it. Yeah, it's it's one of those universal situations where everyone's like, this is not a great situation to be playing a test match in. But the commentators and are a little bit disgusted by Moin's defensive tactics and, and clearly deliberate time wasting. And so... They do end up, by the end of it all, urging for the match to get to its finish, even though they start by opposing it. And yeah, fast bowlers are bowling in poor light, which, again, wouldn't be allowed today. Thorpe and Hick, when they're batting together, are able to like run out, run a lot between the wickets, because even though the boundaries are hard to come by, it's, again, difficult for the wicketkeeper or the, the bowlers to have somebody who's like falling through near the stumps to run them out. And really, by the end, it's it's funny, because you can almost see like the fielders are just... <laughs> not moving because <laughs> it's so dark that they just don't see the ball so they're like why even bother so it you you at the end of the day you you end up you know just having that situation and after a flurry of boundaries at the very end you end up getting a french cut uh that ends up sealing what ends up being a pretty historic win and uh yeah during all of this you know um it is kind of funny too because uh, we, you know, obviously I mentioned that the light affected the fielders and and the the bowlers' performances, but there was another factor that was going on that was not necessarily related to the cricketing conditions that did have perhaps an effect on Pakistan's players and uh, stuff. You you had a really interesting uh, account from Saklan Mushtaq about it. Yeah, so the second and third tests in this series were played during Ramadan in 2000. And so, if you don't know, during Ramadan, Muslims, which includes most of the Pakistani team at this point, I believe it's everyone except Yusuf and Canaria, they don't eat or drink from dawn to dusk. And dusk comes quite early in winter at this time of year, this is why the light is a whole issue. But uh, because of that, it, me it meant that while Pakistan were playing at night in the darkness, uh, dusk had come, so they were allowed to eat now and break their fast. But they were not able to while they were on the field, and that was starting to get to some of the players, in particular Sikhlein Mushtaq, who was a very devout Muslim. And he later says in an interview that he had directly told Moin Khan, Moin Bai, we need to stop this test match. I'm hungry and the sun has set. I need to break my fast, man. Forget about the test match. Because it was, it was just very, it was very difficult conditions for a lot of the Pakistani players. Because you know, again, like they hadn't eaten since morning, which I guess would be around like six, seven a.m. at this point of the year. But you know, they were tired. The hunger was setting in, and they had the chance to break their fast, but they couldn't take it because they were busy on the field trying to waste as much time as possible. And with Buckner making it clear that they would not, the time wasted would not be 
tolerated, and he would make sure the minimum of overs would be get, would be uh, played out. There was little point in trying to carry on. Instead, they should probably just hurry it up so they could start eating. Which, which I, I just must say, the, 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 it, it is absolutely one of those most hilarious situations that I've seen on a cricket field. Uh, the third test is played in the National Stadium in Karachi. Pakistan haven't really lost a test <laughs> in Karachi since, like, God knows how long at this point. It, it, to date, the record for the most amount of test matches that haven't been lost in a venue by a home team was the National Stadium in Karachi. It was like over 40 years since they've been playing there and they didn't lose a test match prior to this match. So just goes to show that hunger can do anything for a cricketer because <laughs> even that historic record didn't really matter as much <laughs> discipline at this point. And I do care a little bit, but yeah, just an extraordinary set of events at large. Let's now talk about the overall legacy of this series at large and on the cricketing world and also some lessons that the current teams, I should say, of England and Pakistan can take when they're about to end up in this contest and, and do battle, metaphorically, so to speak, in Pakistan for this upcoming tour. Uh, and, and the first takeaway, just from a legacy standpoint, is that for England, this really was the start to a rise to the top. Um, you know, a lot of our listeners are probably aware of the 2005 Ashes Test Series where England wrestled the, you know, Ashes for in the first time really in like a good nearly two decades from a Australian team that is num ranked number one in the world. And, uh, you know, it's a really momentous moment. But the start of that really comes from this Test Series win against Pakistan because it, it really, for them, is a highlight that showcases that with proper planning, consistent selection, and more importantly, just a gelling into a cohesive unit where each player knows their roles and, and performs them to the degree that is expected for the most part, they can be deemed as a legitimate competitive side in international cricket. And this is really the start of that. And and they go on to win a series in Sri Lanka. They lose 1-0 to India in the subcontinent, but it's they do pretty well in the two remaining draws of that three-match test series after losing the first one. So they, they, they show a really good record in the subcontinent. And even though they do kind of get clobbered a bit by that great Australian team of the early 2000s. For the most part, this is very much a steep ascent to the top after the series. And it's it's a validation of Duncan Fletcher, the coach, and his methods. So he gets a, you know, a pretty extended rope after this. Um, and even though you don't see too many players from the side that end up representing England in that 2005 Ashes from this Pakistan tour, you do start seeing a much more stable, cohesive side in a team environment where players are much more that are coming through are given proper opportunities to, to shine and you can see that in the selection during the series right England go in with the same 11 throughout and even though they don't necessarily always follow that in subsequent series there is an idea now that okay we have an idea of what of planning things out in a much more pragmatic fashion and actually working to win series and having a long-term mindset toward climbing to the top of the world rankings for after just the year before being stuck at the bottom. So pretty important series for England, all things considered. Yeah, for Pakistan, this is, as we mentioned several times before, this is a transitional period for them. And this really, you know, this and the Zimbabwe loss the previous year really shows that there are a lot of issues 
within the Pakistan team. And I think you can really see that transitional mindset almost with a lot of the personnel who play in the series. Because if you look back on them, how many of these players go, how many of these players have their best days ahead of them for Pakistan? Most of them either have their best days behind them or they never really have good days with Pakistan. You could say Yusuf definitely has better days ahead of him. Inzi definitely has better days ahead of him. Canaria definitely goes on to play a big part going forward despite a, a difficult debut series. But aside from them, you know, Razak maybe, maybe Afridi. But everyone else of the 15 people who play on this tour, they don't really get much success with the national side. But again, like that is a solid core to begin to build something around. And it does, you know, Pakistan is not a disaster side for the next few years. They have their moments. Quality, they have their moments without quality. As we saw with, you know, Yusuf and Inzi is probably the thing that works the best out of anything in this series. And it does go on to, again, be very successful going forward. And they get added to by Yunus Khan in that middle order. Again, he's not here, but he comes back after this series and he does very well with Yusuf and Inzi in that engine room for quite a while. So... Yeah, Pakistan, they're in transition, and they really need to find things that work and begin to let go of things that don't. And that doesn't really happen for quite a while, but the overall quality is still good enough within that side to be able to hang on for at a reasonable level for quite a while going forward. They're never the great team they were in the 90s after this, but they're never a disastrous team until until quite a bit after this. And that, you know, the disastrous part comes from things that happen off the field that... Yeah, that's a topic for another time. Indeed. <laughs> but yeah, so that's very much in terms of how the series affected the two teams, right? But the incidences in the series, they didn't only affect these teams. There were definitely ramifications for what happened. And specifically, I'm talking about one incident that we already kind of sort of mentioned that happened in the fourth innings of the third test. Um, and stuff, you did a little bit more research into how the series impacted that the ICC's laws and rules regarding that, so fire away. So time-wasting was not a new thing in cricket before this. It's something that has a very long history within the sports, but it was taken to real extremes by Moin Khan in that fourth innings of the last test, and that ends up forcing a change. Because before this, there was no method to give on-field penalties for time-wasting. All that would happen would be at most, the captain gets a warning, he gets two warnings, he gets an official reprimand. But that official reprimand would not come on the field. It would be given to the match referee and he would discipline the captain later with off-field punishments. You know, like the fine system that you get today that was still around back then. But this series does force some changes around time-wasting. There are now mechanisms to punish teams for really egregious time-wasting on the field by giving... The opposition team runs for it, penalty runs for it, before in the laws it was specifically stated no penalty runs can be given for time wasting. After that it was changed to give five penalty runs if it gets really bad. And it also just opened up the conversation again about like how do you deal with time wasting because you know other sports they do have more mechanisms to account for time wasting you know in think of football or soccer as uh, some people call it here. If, if you waste time, the time gets added on at the end of the game. If, in a lot of American sports, you can't even time waste because once the ball is out of play, you just pause the clock. But cricket is a sport that really depends on uh, environment, depends on the time window it's being given, so you can't really 
add-on time at the end. You can't pause time in case people are wasting time. So you have to punish things on the on the field, and this is the first. And this becomes the driving force to begin to begin that conversation around how do we give proactive punishments that way people don't do it on the field instead of just a handshake agreement and making sure that you know we super mega promise we won't do it if you won't do it either <laughs> yeah and to that point right um part of the reason why it be- became such a sort of uh, apart from the crazy result that happened at, because at the end of it and and buckner's you know sort of irritation that was the broadcast of the world another factor about it was that the english came out and admitted that if they were in the exact same situation they would have done the exact same thing <laughs> so you know it was one of those situations where everyone it, it wasn't just a situation where one team did it and you know the other team's press complained about it and then things died down it was one of those situations where pretty much everyone admitted okay this is kind of messed up that we can <laughs> you know we could do this right and and that teams can just do this and get away with it. So yeah, it 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 does affect the ICC regulations and and I think if I'm not mistaken by 2005 2006 the the rules are updated in in that regard. So it doesn't happen too much after the series. So now turning back to the tour we have coming up. Pratham, what would you say are some potential lessons that the English team touring again they're already in Pakistan right now the series starts very soon what lessons do you think they could take from this series in 2000 the last time England had a successful tour of Pakistan yeah so the the first thing i would say uh, which could be relevant for England assuming they get wickets similar to these i make that point because you always have to look at wickets that are prepared on the day of the match right i've seen wickets in the so-called bouncy haven of australia which is slow low flat subcontinental style wickets ahem adelaide 2006 i've seen green tops that have been produced in pakistan also so you have to look at the actual pitches that are prepared for the series in the context having said that assuming that they get wickets similar to these and given a certain previous series where the strategy was employed to <laughs> prepare slow low dead featherbed pitches to discourage a touring team that happened in the not too distant past there is a chance that this happens one thing that could be very relevant for england is that their quicks really need to know how to bowl well in these conditions and especially the ones who are more on the pacio side right almost express side and so in particular i'm talking about mark wood and jamie overton now mark wood we know for a fact is going to be out for the first test match he's recovering from his injury that he suffered in the world cup but one of the things that was noticeable in this 2000 test series was that quick bowlers and especially quick short bowlers like wood like goff and white might have been slightly slower than wood but they were still pretty pretty sharp uh, did get some reverse and that often what is stereotypically associated with the strategy quote unquote to win in in Pakistan that you you have to reverse the ball uh, and that's how you're going to get wickets when the when the pitch is flat and while that to some extent is true one of the things i think that gets lost in the shuffle a bit and that's perhaps a bit more important is that goff and white they use the off cutter in the series to very good effect and they really would use it as a very good variation to set up batsmen right so they'd bowl straight quick balls or balls that would when they would get a little bit of movement in the air for the first, with the new ball just a little bit shaping away or slanting in a way 
And then they'd bowl those a couple in succession, and then they would bowl that as the variation and trap them plumb in front, LBW, or bowl them with the off-cutter. And Goff, in particular, used this to very good effect. And if Mark Wood is fit, it would be very useful to, for him to utilize this variation more often to get wickets on pitches that are going to, in all likelihood, defer from the ones that he gets uh, that he got in the previous series that he did pretty well in on, on an overseas tour that was not the West Indies. I'm talking about Australia, where he ended up in the series, I think, averaging 26 overall, and he got a green top in Hobart, where he was able to hit the deck and bowl short and really hustle and bustle the batsman up. I don't think that's going to quite necessarily work on this series, but I do think he does have an off-cutter. I just don't think he uses it very well. I, I haven't seen him bowl it a lot, to be precise. He might have a pretty good one. But... You know, maybe refining it and working on it a little bit more could help. And I don't think he would have to make massive changes, right? Him and the other Express Quick in the series, Jamie Overton. Now, Jamie Overton's a little bit taller than Goff, White, or Wood. But it is, again, one of the situations where they don't really have to go about necessarily developing an all-new, different style of variation, right? This is not like an off-spinner having to bowl a dusra per se. But what they could do is uh, they could, like, it could be as simple as just, like, developing a variation on your existing off-cutter where you have the fingers slightly wider to allow allow it to grip a little bit more when it lands on the surface. Or alternatively, go the other way and sort of bowl a cutter where there's a less drop in pace, right? Because it's be held a little bit more tighter together or there's less, you know, it's bowled a little bit quicker, but it bounces a bit more awkwardly. Because there there were wickets in this series where White would bowl the off cutter and he would get batsmen to mistime the ball. And it wasn't just because it was a significantly slower off cutter, but sometimes it was an off cutter which wasn't the difference in pace variation wasn't that great. So either ways I just think working on developing like subtle variations on the off cutter would be something interesting for both Wood and, you know, even Overton, who's in line potentially to play the first test to try and experiment and use a lot more when they're playing in this series. Yeah, so in terms of lessons the home team could take, and management as well in particular could take from this series, which again, the last time Baksan have lost at home to England, and one of only two times they've done so, I would say try not to fall into the trap of requesting curators prepare slow, low wickets, especially ones that they may not be able to fully deliver on. We saw what happened when those were prepared for Australia. We were playing coy with this earlier, but... <laughs> Uh, we saw what happened when Australia got these types of tracks. You know, Australia is a very different team from England, but those tracks ended up playing into Australia's hands almost, and it sort of puts Pakistan under pressure if they haven't already, if they're not already ahead going into the final test match, then they need to prepare a pitch that's more lively, and that ended up being something that helped Australia because on a livelier pitch, their their bowling attack ended up making a difference that Pakistan's could not. And again, like modern England is different from modern Australia, but some of those same lessons could be taken. England, this past summer, they won seven tests out of eight on mostly flat surfaces, demolishing bowling attacks on pitches that lacked a lot of lateral movement for the quicks and allowed their batters to hit through the line and aggressively take the game away from the opposition. This is peak baseball, right? You do not want to play into England's strength. And if the wickets were prepared like they were in 2000, that very well might. Pakistan should also watch out and make detailed plans to counter Jack Leach because he was he did play quite a big role in the success of the bowling side of baseball. He took a 10 for at home against New Zealand and bowled very well in the West Indies in the first test on what was quite a dead surface. Even though England lost that series, Leach was definitely someone who came out of that series with some credit. And it might actually be best for Pakistan, you know, 
funnily enough, to prepare somewhat seamer-friendly surfaces. you think that would play into England's hands, but uh, Pakistan have quality fast bowlers themselves. They have Nassim, they have Rauf. Shaheen might not be back in time for this series, but if he is, you might want to play him and give him help. There's a lot of very good fast bowling stocks within Pakistan, so if you want to dismiss a very fragile England lineup, you should probably give your bowler some help to do that. Speaking of pace bowlers, I would say another lesson that Pakistan could learn from 2000 is in regards to their pace attack because Fahim Ashraf is very likely to be playing the series and Fahim Ashraf should know and follow the role that he is assigned to play as a bowler in the side, I would say. Because in my mind, if the surfaces end up playing similar to what they did in 2000, his role is going to be to bowl just slightly back over length, deliveries, wicket to wicket, right? And just stick to that. Right, Because uh, one of the weaknesses that we didn't talk about in the context of the series earlier, but was very noticeable when we were watching the footage of the, the series in, in preparation for this, was Razak was very insistent <laughs> on bowling a lot of bouncers, or I should say attempted bouncers, because they were very predictable. They sat up on the surface, because he wasn't bowling all that quick, the bouncer, at this time in his career, because he was only bowling around 80 to 83 miles per hour and the surfaces were pretty slow and so even though sometimes he was pinging you know Thraskothic and so forth just and doing them for a lack of pace on the surface for the most part he, when he bowled that delivery he got smashed for four and given that he had a high arm chest on action and was pretty short uh, he wasn't you know really going to get that much bounce compared to say a taller bull who might have been more effective with that strategy and Fahim Ashraf isn't very tall either I mean he's He's also not like six foot five or anything like that. So given that Fahim's actually arguably slower and shorter than Razak, he really shouldn't be attempting that bouncer tactic that Razak did in this series. And he shouldn't do it even if he gets encouraged the way that Razak did in that second test where Tuscott got hit a little bit because of the sluggishness of the pitch. Because again, that's just, I think, a very ineffective way of using him on surfaces like this. And to that point, the coaches... Pakistan have had, how do I put this, not the best reputation or, or history in the past of having coaches that are necessarily responding tactically to the state of the game that they're currently looking at and, and in terms of preparation and so forth. So it's very important that the coach of Pakistan cricket at this point instructs his cricketers to play their part well. And that's where the advice to Fahim to bowl in that sort of tight, wicket-to-wicket, -wicket, restrictive sort of way really would come handy. And another thing I want to bring up, this goes for both teams, is how you handle your spinners. And I would say the most important thing is don't just pick spinners for spin's sake. In England's case, this mainly refers to Bess and Adil Rashid. Uh, Rashid was not picked for this uh, series, and neither was Moin Ali, but it was implied by McCollum that was something they were looking at. These are guys that may not be in form and may not have played much first-class cricket at all over the last few years. And that's the sort of thing that leads to a performance like what Ian Salisbury did in this series in 2000. And really quickly to that, they did end up picking a 19-year-old uh, in Rehan Ahmed who has had a fairly good time in the county championship. But that pick, he's an inexperienced bowler. And we saw what happened to Canaria when he made his debut in the second test of this series. And so there's definitely a temptation to play him in the starting 11. But again, England, if you're going to play him, be patient with him. He might not uproot trees immediately or, or do that well overall in the series. But recognize that that is a possibility. If you don't really think the pitch is going to be helpful to his style of bowling, don't bowl him on the day of the match once you see the pitch. But yeah, just wanted to quickly interject to bring that point up. 
Yeah, and for Pakistan, you have a similar case. First, you have Sajid Khan, who there may be a temptation to bring him back just to get an extra spinner in. But his action is a little inconsistent rhythm-wise, and he hasn't really been able to consistently take wickets whenever he's bowled against better sides. It's a similar issue with Noman Ali, who is Pakistan's starting spinner for this series. And part of the reason for Pakistan's poor performance in those last two tests against Australia could perhaps be attributed to Sajid and Noman being quite ineffective on flat, slow wickets. And you brought up Rayan Ahmad. Pakistan has their own equivalent of him going into the series, a young talented spinner in Abrar Ahmad. Now, if he, if the management feels like he has developed his game enough to be ready for test cricket, then by all means play him, and by all means give him every chance he needs to succeed. But if they don't think he's ready, then you don't need to play him right now. Yeah, it's You don't need to cap tie him to Pakistan, there's no one else He's not going to play for another national team if you make him wait another year. He's had a very good first-class season, and he may be ready, he may not be. Other people closer to him would know that better than us, but the important thing is to only play him if he's very close to being ready. And if he has a poor game, if he has a poor series, that's not a reason to, that's not a reason to completely discount him as well. Now... Again, like he's a very promising young spinner, like Canario was in 2000, and if he's, you know, a bad debut series could really dent his confidence. So again, it's just something to be very aware of as you pick a young promising spinner. You don't want to damage their confidence beyond repair. Canaria did end up having better days after the series, but you always get the feeling that he could have done better than he did. There are a lot of reasons for that, but. A difficult debut series and perhaps not as much support as he would have liked from management were two big parts of that and it's really important that that doesn't happen to more players well said and yeah want to thank you stuff for coming on here it's been a great time chatting about this series at large it's been a great time just chatting with you in general we at kakona cricket cast are going to be signing off here we hope you enjoyed this blast from the past <laughs> I sound corny while saying that, but that's fine. We hope you enjoy this blast from the past. Do feel free to like, comment, subscribe, and share all your feedback we have. This is a new series that we're doing after all. And yeah, till next time. Bye.